Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Today's episode is the first part of Tragic Friends, which was an Edinburgh reunion gig which we had on the 25th of September. If you want to catch some live tragedy, come to the Hackney Attic on the 25th of October for our last Stand Up Tragedy live show of 2014. It's a Halloween special, Tragic Horror. And we've got a really amazing lineup, including a steampunk storytelling band, The Mechanisms, new popular reciter James Mackay doing a Victorian story that is one of the scariest stories that you'll have ever heard. We've got werewolf erotica, we've got music, we've got true storytelling. It's going to be a really great night. And it's on a Saturday, which means We can stay out late and we don't have to worry about getting up the next day. So come on down to the Hackney Attic on the 25th of October. And now sit back, relax, get ready to listen to some tragedy. This is Act One of Tragic Friends. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Now... (laughs) What we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we stand up and we do tragedy. We find performers who do different kinds of genres. We we get comedians, spoken word artists, storytellers, musicians and more. And we get them to stand up here and do some tragedy. Now, that means whatever tragedy means to them. It's, It's up to them to interpret tragedy. Yes, come in, come in, sit down, join the tragedy. Right. Um, So, yes, that's what we do. We want people to cry until they laugh and laugh until they cry. Uh, so that's something to remember, uh, that tragedy is about sad things. So sad things are going to be talked about on this stage. Now, if you're walking down the street in your general life, a tragedy could befall you at any time. Uh, tonight, tragedy's definitely going to befall uh, this room. Uh, hopefully not in a practical way, hopefully just in a performance way. That'll be better. Right. Uh, so what we're doing tonight is we've we, we did a show at Edinburgh. We did uh, an, a, a run of, uh, of an hour of tragedy every night from the, uh, let's see if I can remember, the 2nd to the 22nd of, 4th to the 22nd of August. Wow, 24th. This is the kind of excellent heckling that you're going to get tonight. Uh, although, don't heckle the tragedy too much. You can heckle me. I don't mind that. Uh, and that's my team members heckling me. That's where they have specific information. Anyway, so we did a show for, for August in Edinburgh, an hour of tragedy every night at the Banshee Labyrinth. And we had a different lineup every night. And what we've done is we've invited some of our favourite acts to come and perform tonight that we had in Edinburgh. So this is kind of like a reunion tonight. It's a party atmosphere. Nice, nice. So yes, it's a party about tragedy. Yeah. That's what it is. Uh, So yes, so uh, people who were in Edinburgh will remember that what I'm going to do now is the sadmin section of the evening. So we're a podcast, so you can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Start Radio app, and anywhere that you hear uh, podcasts on the internet. Um, We've got over there in not very good lighting. How are you doing for lighting, Pete? A little bit more lighting for the live scriber, please. We have Peter Mori, the live scriber. He is going to be scribing the tragedy tonight. There we go. 
Wow, through the darkness, and then here he is. Uh, so he's going to be basically drawing the tragedy as it happens. So in your breaks, go over and see what he's doing uh, and have a, have a look at what's going on. And at the end of the night, we're going to auction that scribe. Uh, in fact, so, you know, he might be... So it's up to you. He might be the best-paid member of the performers that you see tonight uh, if, you, if you pay him highly for his work. So that's a good thing to think about. Uh, there you go. So... Um, right, so I'm going to inv- invite our first performer of the night on. Um, he does a podcast called Getting Better Acquainted that you can find at www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. Uh, he also hosts a night called Stand Up Tragedy. Uh, put your hands together, everybody, for Dave Pickering! Right. So I don't know if this counts as tragedy, but it's about stand-up tragedy. So that's kind of why it's in the show. So I, I mentioned just now that we took a show up to Edinburgh and uh, that it was a great time. We had really good audiences. We had really good performers. It was a really great time. But as the uh, Edinburgh run carried on towards its end, I suddenly realised a flaw in my logistical abilities. Now, what I'd done is I'd left slots at the end of the run available for performers that I met up in Edinburgh who I hadn't met before who I, so I could slot them in. And what I didn't realise is no one wants to do any performances on the last day of the Edinburgh Fringe because they haven't got a show to promote and they're tired. Very tired. Very, very tired. And, and so it became clear to me that I was not going to have any acts for my last, uh, last... I wanted a big finale, a big tragic finale, you know. Uh, but I didn't have uh, any acts. So I was scrabbling around to find acts. And I, I found three acts. And I thought, fuck it, they can have longer slots. Um, and so that was, that was where I was at. Going into the last show, I had three acts. And uh, they were going to do longer slots. It was probably going to be okay. So Liz, who is uh, basically uh, known as the dad of the stand-up tragedy crew. Uh, I'm the mum. She's the dad. We like to break stere- uh, gender stereotypes uh, at stand-up tragedy. Um, and she, uh, she, but she said to me, come on, in London you often do the show drunk. You haven't done the show drunk the whole time, so you're going to be drunk for the last show. Uh, so that was her objective was getting the host drunk, uh, which she did very well. We saw a great show. Uh, Miranda Kane, I very much recommend it. Some great uh, comedy about sex work. Uh, And then we went on to do stand-up tragedy. Uh, And we're sort of standing outside, flyering, and I'm sort of drunk flyering. I was the best flyering I'd ever done. You know, I was properly selling the show. Nobody cared because it's the last day of the Edinburgh Fringe and they've all got five-star shows to go to, actually. Um, So uh, so that's that's how I'm sort of trying to sell the show. And a familiar figure walks uh, up the hill towards the venue uh, and I'm, I think, hang on that's Stuart Lee and uh, so I'd seen Stuart Lee a couple of times in Edinburgh you go up during the fringe, you bump into the famous people, you know, in the Sainsbury's I'd seen him a couple of times but every time I'd seen him he was with his kids and so I'd not thought that it was appropriate to go up to someone with their kids having a life and say, will you do my show, will you do my show, I love you. Um, so I didn't, I didn't bother him. Um, but then so, you know, this sort of felt like fate. Uh, there he was. Uh, so I went up to him and I said, uh, free show at 7.30, sir? And uh, he said, yeah, stand-up tragedy, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> right? 
I mean, I don't, I don't know why he came to see the show. I don't know if it was because he was like looking in the book and he goes like, oh, well, that sounds like my cup of tea stand-up tragedy. Or if, you know, one of the performers who's performed here, like Josie Long or someone recommended us. I hope that. I, I suspect the second. Um, uh, the first. Whichever was the more negative is the one I suspect. Because I were on a tragedy night, so I assume the worst. Um, so I, I, I directed him to our, our venue. And I was like, right, Stuart Lee's in the audience. Stuart Lee's in the audience. This has got to be a good show. I've only got three acts. How's this going to go? I don't know. I don't know. How's this going to go? Then uh, one of those three acts, he finishes his comedy show and he comes down and he says, I don't want to do the show. Uh, I'm tired. I've just done my last, last, last show. I'm not doing it. Sorry. And so I've got two acts. <laughs> and Stuart Lee's in the audience. And it's time to go. I, go. I go in and I go up on stage and I do all the sort of spiel that you saw earlier on, but even more shambolic. Like, that was quite shambolic tonight. I'm kind of specialised in shambolicness. It's kind of my thing. Um, but this was really shambolic. I was a complete mess. Like, the, the microphone kept going wrong and dropping the mic and all sorts of things. Now... I welcome the first act on. Now, she is a brilliant harp player called Josie Rose Duncan, and she's got a harp, right? And that's, she, it's normally beautiful, and it normally works brilliant, but she starts, and then it doesn't work, like it's not in tune. So she has to retune the harp. It's a lot of strings on a harp. It's kind of an awkward moment. Then she starts the song, uh, and then she stops and starts again, because she'd started in the wrong key, because when she was tuning, she'd put the switches in the wrong place. So this is so far my show for Stuart Lee. It's a brilliant show uh, that I'm presenting him. I mean, she was brilliant, don't get me wrong, but it was a sort of awkward sort of st- start. The second act we had on, uh, he was a, 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 a storyteller, uh, a, a Scottish storyteller. So we were really pleased to get some Scottish acts for our last night. That was kind of a coup for me. I was pleased about that, going out with some Scottish acts. Although I did think that the referendum was the next day, and it was obviously not. <laughs> And I did say that in front of Stuart Lee and then get into an awkward interaction with the two Scottish people about what they were voting for. You know, I, I basically pressed all the wrong buttons in the room. So that was some nice skill. He came up and, he, and then he said, I don't think I have any tragedy from all of the Scottish folk tales. Do you understand that? Because I don't understand that. But he, he reckons he didn't have any tr- tragedy. So he decided to tell a story about um, what was under his kilt uh, and how he'd once flashed everyone in the Royal Mile... And that was a good story. It wasn't very tragic. But at this point, I didn't feel like I was presenting Stuart Lee with my best work. Um, Thankfully, so at this point, I was pretty much stuffed. But luckily, just before I'd come in, I had uh, spoken to a wonderful guy called the Monkey Poet. And I'd said to him, look, I haven't got any acts. I've wanted to get you on the whole run, but you're like a will-o'-the-wisp. I can't catch you. You're always running somewhere, running somewhere. saying, yeah, I'll do the show, but I'm going. Um, And he was like... I can't do it, I've got no voice. And I'm like, what? He's like, I really have lost my voice. And I'm like, okay, man, don't worry, don't worry. Uh, but then he came through. So once the show had started, he came in just as I was going on and he grabbed me by the arm and he said, I'm going to do it. And I was like, because he knew Stuart Lee was in the audience and he wanted to help us out and he was very kind to do that. So the next act was The Monkey Poet. He did two poems and he had no voice. And the thing is, his poems are about shouting. But he couldn't shout. So it was very painful to watch this man just hurt his larynx. <laughs> and he was like, do you want me to do another one? And I was like, no, it's okay. <laughs> and everybody had run short. So I get up 
And I got like nearly half an hour of material. I got one song, it's three minutes. And I look into the audience and I catch Stuart Lee's eye. And I sort of think, right, this is a moment I can transform this last moment of the Edinburgh Festival for us. So I said, you know, well, our next act, I don't know if he wants to do it. Uh, He might not. He doesn't know me from Adam, so he probably won't trust me. His stage persona suggests he might very well say no. (laughs) But if he wants to share some tragedy with us tonight, we'll... And Stuart Lee nodded his head and smiled. And I thought, fucking hell, I'm going to introduce Stuart Lee. And then I did introduce Stuart Lee, everybody. And Stuart Lee came on. The whole audience were like, what the fuck's happening? And and when I say the whole audience, I mean like four people um, and the performers. And, and, And then Stuart Lee comes on stage and he fucking does 20 minutes, a solid fucking amazing performance that he won't let us podcast, but it was amazing. And, uh, and the, the, by the end of his act, the room is packed. The whole of the bars come in because they know Stuart Lee's on stage. And he finishes, and I've still got three minutes. And I've got a song that's three minutes. <laughs> so then I asked the audience if it's appropriate for me to go on after Stuart Lee. And the audience said, yes. Bless them. Uh, and then I closed up the show with a song. So tonight, we're going to close up tonight with that same song. So we're, but ne- you never know, Stuart Lee might arrive. I mean, I did send a, an, an email to his agent, because that was the thing. Where as he ran away, I sort of said, Stuart, I'd love to get you on the, on the bill in London. I'd really like to book you. What do you, what do you reckon? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a website. And I'm like, no, I, I, I want to... And he, was, and he said it again. He said it a few times. He said it a few times in a clear, it's a bit way. Uh, so, but you never know. Who knows? Maybe his website does mean that you can contact him directly. It doesn't. Uh, but maybe he'll come and maybe he'll close the night. But if he doesn't, I will sing us out. And that is my sort of almost tragic, but not quite, story of the last day of the tragedy at Edinburgh. <laughs> So now we're going to have the first person who isn't me, and I'm sure you're all glad of that. Uh, so, uh, right, so this first person I'm, I'm introducing, I'm really pleased to be introducing him as the first act. In Edinburgh, he, was, he, was, he did a show in the same venue as us, and he was often our last resort when people didn't turn up, and he came in and he saved the day so many times, and sometimes had to be cut short because they did arrive and it was awkward. Um, so I'm really pleased that no one's going to cut him off today. He's going to get his full ten minutes of tragedy. Uh, you can... He, runs a storytelling night called the Story Forge in Sheffield uh, he, he gets uh, the standard tragedy Dan Simpson award for pe- perseverance at the Edinburgh Festival the man was on his own always with a flyer always walking with a determined yet slightly bleak look in his eyes He's kind of a part of the stand-up tragedy family to the point that he insisted on getting a t-shirt and he calls Liz dad um, you can find him at www.timralphs.com, which gives away who he is. But ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Tim Ralphs! Goodness, that was a far warmer and friendly uh, welcome than um, 
than I feel that I really deserve at this stage in time of the evening. It's great to be here. It's great. To, it's nice to kind of see people in that kind of vague, oh, those faces. That I feel like it's, it's nice to have a phased return into not being at Edinburgh. <laughs> it's nice to have this kind of slight rehabilitative halfway house. So thank you, Dave and, and Liz, for putting that all together. Um, I love the ethos of stand-up tragedy, that whole cry until you laugh, laugh until you cry. I'm just going to address the first word of that mantra. I was really shocked when Callum Lycan, the, the storyteller in Dave's uh, tales, said that there were no tragic Scottish traditional folk tales. <laughs> so I'm just going to tell you the most miserable traditional Arcadian folk tale that I know. There's a beach on the island of Orkney. And when the slate-grey North Atlantic tide slides down the sand of the shore, it reveals both an artist's palette and a pantry to the people who live near that beach. They go down to the rocks and they gather in the seaweed, the sea lettuce, they call it. They pick the tough brown sea lettuce that you have to boil just right so it's not chewy like leather. They pick the turquoise blue stuff that's so tart you don't even need to pickle it in vinegar. The best stuff is the long, strong, fresh green strands. But that, that they leave. And this is why. There was a family that lived in that little village. A widow and her two daughters. The husband... The father, he'd been a fisherman like so many of the young men were, and then one day a storm, a squall had come out of nowhere, had sunk his boat. When the two girls were small, the other fishermen used to say that they would see a seal, a seal with the dead father's eyes, with the same blonde mop of hair on its head. They would say that this was the father swimming in the sea, waiting for them. And when they were very small, that sort of talk comforted the two girls. And as they grew up, well, it kind of seemed a little bit childish. But they liked the other fishermen. They'd often find their way, and they grew into teenagers, down to the beach. They'd watch the boats come in. There was one fisherman in particular. They'd sort of grown up watching him grow up and mostly grow out. Every time he hauled his beach, uh, he's hauled his boat up onto the beach, he would take off the seal skins and the shirts that he wore and then bare and hairy chested, they'd watch as he mended his nets, as he hauled in his catch. And the elder and the younger sister would look at one another and would giggle as they watched him work. And eventually he came to their house. He courted the eldest daughter. She took after the father most. She had that same straggly blonde hair. She had that same kind of smile about her. The younger sister took after her mother. Her hair was straight and dark. And her demeanour was quiet. And she never confessed her jealousy to her sister. She tried to smile as she watched them dancing together. She even tried to smile as her mother began to go on and on about the inevitable wedding. But one evening, she took herself by the clifftop pass all the way up to the place where the cunning woman lived just outside their village. And she said, as she entered that small hut, um, my mum is having a lot of trouble sleeping do you have a charm, a spell, 
that might ease her to sleep. And the cunning woman kind of looked up with one eye. And the crow that she kept on a perch in that hut squawked. And she said, I know just what you want. And she sang a song, a lullaby. And she only had to sing the first few bars. And the dark-haired girl could feel her eyelids falling heavy. The next day, she took her elder sister to the cliff path. And then down onto the beach, just as the tide had turned and was starting to roll in. And they sat on the rocks, watching the water, watching the boats. And the younger said to the elder, let me comb your hair. (laughs) So the elder sister, she sat down in front of the rocks. The younger, she sat on the rocks and she began to run her fingers through those tangled blonde curls. And as she combed, she began to sing. Hey, who, hey, who, hey, who, hey, who. Hey, who, hey, who, hey, who, hey, who. Hey, ah, hey, ah, hey, ah, hey, who. Hey, who. And as she sang, her sister fell deep into the amazement of the enchantment until she was as heavy as the damp sand she was lying on. And then the younger sister took those tangled blonde curls and the long, strong green strands of the seaweed and she plaited the one into the other until that great rock boulder that she'd been sitting on was her sister's pillow. And then she went back to the cliff path, wandered up to the top and watched as the first salt wave fell over her sister's body. Then she woke up, but she didn't have a chance to draw breath to cry out before the second wave washed up and over her. And the dark haired girl went back home. It was days before her sister's body was found, was brought in. The whole village was stricken with grief. She found she did not have to pretend when she cried at the funeral. And less than a year had passed before that fisherman came to their house again, began to court the younger girl. And there was not one minute, one moment of a day when she felt a twinge of guilt in her heart until they were in the midst of preparing their own wedding celebration. And then then one evening, when they were walking together on the cliffside, she said, Today, when I was out fishing, I saw a seal. I saw that seal with your father's eyes and that strange mop of blonde hair. And she said, I'm grown now. You don't need to tell me those silly childish stories. And he said, No, it's not a story. And there was another seal with him. A younger one, a female, your sister's eyes, your sister's hair. And then it was as if her chest grew a briar patch. She could hardly breathe with the thought of what she had done. And she did not know who she could tell. She dared not tell her fiancé. She dared not tell her mother. She dared not go to the cunning wife once more and tell her. So instead, she went back to the beach The beach where the fishermen pulled up their boats. And just as the tide was coming in, she wrote with her foot the words of her confession. 
making sure that as she did, each wave that came in would wash every word away and salt baptised her toes. And as she walked away, she felt cleansed. The next morning, the village seemed quiet. She wandered down. There was a crowd gathered about the beach, watching the boats. The fishermen didn't seem to have gone out. The waters had rolled away. As she walked down onto the beach, everyone stepped back. And though they had all been washed away by sea the night before, every word that she had written was plain, was clear in the sand that morning, spelling out everything that she had done. And on the horizon, two seal heads bobbed in the waves, blonde of hair, bright of eye. There's a beach on Orkney, and when the slate-grey waters of the North Atlantic roll out, the people go down to the artist's palette, the pantry, the bounty of the ocean, and they gather up the tough brown sea lettuce. They gather up the turquoise blue, but the fresh, strong green strands they leave. And now you know why. Thank you. Tim Ralphs, everybody. So Tim has come uh, from far away today. He's come from Nottingham. Uh, So it's a delight to be able to welcome him here today. Uh, Our next performer has also come a long way. He's come uh, from Newcastle. So, uh, well, I guess our next performer wins uh, out of that. But there we go. Yes, um, so one of the things I should have said to you at the beginning as well is it's a party atmosphere tonight. One of the ways we thought we could do that is to, uh, is to have everybody take pictures using their, using their phones uh, because we, we haven't got a photographer particularly. So we thought it'd be nice for you to do that, take pictures and share them with us. Um, we're on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy and we're on Facebook. Uh, so yeah, share your pictures with us. And also think about tweeting or Facebooking us suggestions for what the theme of each act could be be because that's how in, in, in Edinburgh because we normally theme our London shows but in Edinburgh we didn't theme it and I was kind of retroactively theming it every day and going oh what were the themes that came through oh that was like that was tragic love or that was that was tragic stories or whatever you know that sort of thing so uh, have a think of some tragic themes that each of the acts could have and tweet about them that'd be great so our next performer he as I said has come from Newcastle uh, we, we sort of this is the first time we ever saw him perform just like the first time we ever saw Tim perform was at Edinburgh uh, with Matt it was at our, on, on our stage was the first time I saw him perform. Uh, he was recommended to me by a really brilliant uh, poet who I happen to have gone to university with called Louise Fazakali, uh, Lancaster University, none of that Oxbridge stuff going on here. Uh, but not, not, that I, not that I am objecting anybody. Some of my best friends went to Oxbridge. Uh, anyway... <laughs> Uh, so uh, Louise recommended him to me I'd never seen what he did I thought he was going to do poetry uh, but he didn't Uh, he did something really special it was a really special moment and I was really pleased to have that on my stage so he's going to share another special moment with you that's a weird way to introduce someone put your hands together everyone for Matt Miller hello I am a short man, and we'll lower this. I am a short man, what is from Newcastle, as has been said. 
Um, I'm from a western suburb of Newcastle called Wrighton, which uh, on a sign as you drive in is described as Britain's floral small town, which is accurate because it's far too fucking massive to be a village, but there is nothing there other than a supermarket and a park. So it's a small town and there's a lot of flowers in it. Um, So, um, I'm going to give you a tragic story from when I grew up in in Newcastle. It's a story about a particularly silly lie that I told my father that was silly for two reasons. The story starts off on the other side of Newcastle, off in an eastern suburb called Kenton, right? Uh, I am in a band, right? Um, This was a mode of escape from said dead backwater of Wrighton, and I've managed to pendulum all the other way into fucking Kenton, and I'm playing the bass. Uh, It's the second gig we've done in Kenton, and this one is an under-18s night, and um, before we go on, um, due to the landlady finding... um, uh, uh, some vodka in, in a 16-year-old girl's bag. The whole gig is cut off. It's supposed to be a Christmas special and the Christmas gift of this landlady is fuck off out of my pub. <laughs> so that's what we do in the cold winter December Kenton air. Um, and my head goes, this night and over, and my dad and my stepmom are in Scotland this week, so I could just invite everyone back to mine. And then another bit of my head goes, no, don't do that. But the bit of my head that had the first idea has already started talking. Um, <laughs> so everyone's coming back to mine. Uh, my dad, for his own part, uh, in his 20s and 30s, was a musician himself. He sang in a band, he played guitar. Um, when uh, he got divorced from my mum, which I think was more her doing, um, he lived for a while in Crewkill in a house on which he uh, slept on an airbed and cooked on a gas stove. Uh, I was six, my little sister was four, and the bath was at the end of our beds in our bedroom because he'd accidentally unplugged a leak. To us, this was a massive adventure. Um, uh, but to him he was in quite a bad place but he used to entertain us by um, playing guitar and we really liked him to play the James Bond theme tune which he said was really easy but we nevertheless found it pressing and I was like it's probably about three notes it was um, a few years after this that he first started teaching me guitar once my stepmom had sort of come along and rescued him and we'd moved to a cleaner nicer house and he used to draw out little tablature chord diagrams for me um, um, uh, and I started learning until I had a big argument with my stepmom. This, this is sort of tragedy hit point number one. I had a really big argument with my stepmom, and I, I ran upstairs in tears as well. She was pregnant with my little brother, and I pulled these curtains down that she'd put up for me, and then I pulled out all these chord diagrams, and I tore them up and scattered them around the room, and then I lay on my bed and, and cried. And when Dad found me, he wasn't angry, um, and he said he'd draw me some new ones, but he never did. So that was the end of me learning guitar when I was 11. But five years later, um, I've just nearly not played this gig, but I am in a band, I'm playing bass, and we've come back to that same house. It's five years on, and uh, I say to everyone, look, they're away, but this has to be clean, it has to be quiet, I don't want a big clean-up job. Um, But it was me that started the water fight. Um, (laughs) I went into the garden and I was with Rhiannon, who I quite liked, but wasn't allowed to because she was with 
my best friend. Um, and she suggested water fight, and I agreed, and people trekked mud all through the house, and then it got silly. Um, there was mud everywhere, people had baths, there was uh, vodka and coke stains all over my five-year-old brother's um, bath toys. And, and I, uh, at the end of the night, laughed. Oh, how we laughed. Ha, 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 this place is a shit tip. And then at half nine in the morning, I was woken up from, this is tragedy hit point number two, and I believe probably the fucking tragic climax of the thing, even though it's not the end, um, was woken up by a phone call from McDonald's, where I worked, saying, where are you? You were supposed to be in work half an hour ago. Um, I don't know if anyone's worked at McDonald's, but this is literally the most tragic fucking point of my life. I woke up and cried, and I said, well, please clear this up. And they said, we will. And I went to my shift, and they came and bought burgers and laughed at me. And I went home at five o'clock, and it was a shit tip. Nothing had changed. And I laughed, and then I laughed until I cried. And then I lay on that same bed. Actually, I'd not paid this link when I made this up. But that same bed that I cried on when I tore up, and I had a little cry on there. And um, then I just thought, fuck it. I'm just going to ignore that this exists. So... <laughs> So a week later, when I'm at another party in Heaton, um, I uh, get woken up again at about half nine, again hungover, by my dad this time saying, you need to come home and explain yourself. Um, Which I did. And actually, they were all right about it. You know, they were like, you've been stupid. You were never going to get away with this. We're going to dock your allowance. Um, And then they said, how many people were here? And I said, it was just me, Mark and Finton, the band. Which was there was about eight or nine of us. This was a lie, um, and this was a stupid lie on two counts. One, as I've mentioned, um, baths had been had. Clear evidence of which there was, what with vodka baths, vodka stains on bath toys. Now. Uh, A party where there's eight or nine people getting out of hand and people having baths is understandable. A party with me, Mark and Finton out of the band that we were in having baths is fucking tragic. (laughs) Not something that you want to be explaining to your father. He let it slide. And the second reason that it's tragic is ever since I started relearning music, it really excited him and he really wanted to be involved. And he was always really keen for me to bring round mates into the music room that he had with all his old guitars set up and play music with my friends um, in this music room. And this time I had, before any of the craziness started, we'd sat in that music room and we'd played Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues because it's what we're going to open with at this Christmas gig in Kenton. And... Um, And we filmed it, so after I'd had my telling off from my dad, I said, we played some music, Uh, we filmed it, would you like to see? And he sort of, there was this little jump in his eyes, and he was like, yeah, I'd really like to see that. And then I started getting the video up, and I was like, I'm going to be able to show my dad this thing that that we did that he's always wanted to see. And I clicked, and I was like, fuck, no, there's like eight or nine people in this video. I was like, "Uh, sorry, no, it's, um, it's, it's not loaded properly. And he just looked really, really fucking disappointed. And he said, okay, that's fine. And we both carried on with our lives, really, um, which I appreciate is a somewhat weak ending. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, (laughs) you know, perhaps I'll uh, show this podcast to my father and admit a lie which I suspect he knew all the fucking long. Thank you very much. I've been Matt. Matt Miller, everybody. And yeah, you can you can 
Yeah, you can check out all of the performers who are performing today. They've all performed with us, as I said, in Edinburgh. And there's podcasts of every one of them, so you can listen back to the things that they did in Edinburgh as well uh, on our podcasts. Uh, so, yeah, you get to experience another different tragic moment of Matt's life. Both, I think the one in Edinburgh was sadder, but this, this one had a lot more hope, which is appropriate for a party, party atmosphere that I'm going for. That's good. Right, so... Uh, our next performer uh, is, well, yes, brilliant. Now, she is, right, she did one of my favourite shows I saw in Edinburgh this year. Like, her show, Bridie Lee Kennedy Repeats on You, uh, I saw it twice, I loved it uh, a lot. It was a storytelling show, it was funny, it was moving, and I, I recommended it to everybody that I could. Um, she also does many other things I would recommend. For example, she does a couple of podcasts that you should listen to, Gods of Comedy, and uh, which is about uh, talking to comedians about their spiritual lives. She does that with Beck Hill, that's really good. Uh, and she also does a podcast called Do Who I Say, Not Who I Do, which is a sex and relationships uh, advice uh, podcast, and I heartily recommend both of those. Uh, she's kind of the, 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 the woman behind the Gatecrash Podcast Network, which you should check out all of those podcasts. Um, and yeah, she's doing uh, Bridie Lee Candy Repeats on You live uh, in London on the 4th of October at the Coot Theatre launch. So go and see it. I really do recommend. And so that brings me to introducing her. Put your hands together for Bridie Lee Kennedy! Hi. Um, so as mentioned, I do host a sex and dating advice uh, podcast. I'm also my like primary uh, money-earning thing. I'm a writer, but my most regular gig is I'm a sex columnist, and th- which is a great job because um, they say write about what you love. Um, but <laughs> it's also a bit problematic because I can't... I now am at this stage where in most environments I can't show any uh, weakness or uncertainty about sex... Um, because <laughs> I'm an expert. Um, so, uh, fortunately, this feels like a safe space. So, I am going to tell uh, my first sort of tragic tale um, of a time that sex went horribly wrong for me. Um, if you talk to any of my readers, bit of hush, uh, <laughs> they think I've been flawless from the start. So, um, so I was dating a guy uh, a couple of years ago. Um, we'll call him... James, because that is his name and he is not here. Uh, One of the benefits of moving internationally, I no longer change names in my stories. Um, So I was dating this guy, James. We've been seeing each other for a couple of weeks and things were going um, really well. And I actually really liked this one. Um, But it was a little odd because we hadn't slept together yet. And we were like two and a half weeks in. And I thought this was appalling, which tells you everything you need to know about me. Um... So James and I hadn't slept together yet. I didn't know why, and we hadn't talked about it, but it turns out, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, we hadn't slept together because James was actually still a virgin. Uh, and he, he hadn't told me because he was really embarrassed about it. Um, but he had decided that he was ready to graduate beyond his virginity into that realm of stickiness, of which his friends spoke so reverentially. Um, can't use the word stickiness in my columns. People do not like that. Uh, no, so he decided he was ready to graduate and that I was the girl to do it with. Yay, lucky me. Um, so one night, James and I were making out in the back of his mother's station wagon. It's uh, kicking life goals for James and I. Uh, so we're making out in the back of his mother's station wagon. Things are going 
all right. But a couple of things struck me as pretty odd. Now, the first was that Jane's approach touching a breast as though it was something that might burn him. So he'd sort of, like, go in slowly and then... Uh, Yeah, a little disconcerting. But the bigger problem was, throughout this entire experience, James was completely silent. Like, he didn't make a single noise. If I could just get a show of hands of who would be creeped out in that scenario. Okay, yeah, most of you. Those of you who didn't raise your hands, you're into some weird shit. Uh, If at any point you're getting naked with someone and you think to yourself, yeah, baby, keep it quiet, you've really got to wonder what that says about you. Possibly clubs for you guys, probably in jail. Um, So I did what any normal person would do in that situation and I asked him to talk dirty to me. Now, I'm a nice girl, so I said please. Um, But James freaked out and, of course, he did. I mean, this was already a brand new experience for him and I just threw on this massive spanner in the works. Now, I do need to point out at this juncture that uh, though James was a virgin, he wasn't unfamiliar with the concept of sex. Uh, In fact, as so many young men are, James was a voracious consumer of pornography. So when I said talk dirty to me, his brain threw up the only thing it had at its disposal. He looked me right in the eye and he said in his most seductive tones, I want you to fuck me with your big black cock. (laughs) My... I don't have one on me. We can uh, see if your mum keeps one in the boot of the car, but if she does, that's a whole other conversation. Um, Look, perhaps suffice to say, uh, that was not the night James lost his virginity. Um, (laughs) Turns out, I want you to fuck me with your big black cock when said to a white woman is impossible to recover from. Um, so James and I, we actually, we actually broke up, um, which was a real uh, shame because I, I did actually really like this guy. Um, it just wasn't <laughs> quite the fairy tale first time that James was looking for, um, nor was it the fairy tale several hundredth time that I was looking for. Um, and this was just one of the many occasions that I found in, in adult life that the sort of fairy tale ending you're looking for doesn't actually turn out. Um, so I was very into fairy tales. As a kid, I liked how straightforward it was. Um, I think when you become an adult, that those stories don't kind of make as much sense to you. So a few years ago, I did start writing some fairy tales of my own, um, and I was wondering if I could read one to you guys. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do have to ask that because um, I do a lot of comedy clubs, and I think if I offered to read a fairy tale, they would throw drinks at me. So um, this, is, this is really nice. <clears throat> also, I should point out, I usually read this fairy tale in a really beautiful old book, and I couldn't find it. Um, so normally it's an affectation. This just looks like laziness. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. <clears throat> so this fairy tale is called The Sad-Eyed Boy. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful princess... All right, maybe not like Middleton, beautiful. Kate, that is, not Pippa, nice girl, just not my taste. But she did okay. She smiled a lot and she laughed easily and she had the eyebrows of a young Brooke Shields. (laughs) Or as one particularly evil stepsister pointed out, a young Tom Selleck. Either way, she was a princess and she went to many balls and enjoyed dancing with her friends and more than a few princes. 
One of these princes was kind and danced well. He made the princess laugh and he asked her opinion on matters of importance and he chose her first to dance at every ball. One night, he asked her if she'd like a lift home in his pumpkin. But the princess was young and reckless and she liked to walk. So she demurred. Demurred. (laughs) Yeah, it's a word I've only ever really seen written down. Um, She said no gently. I think that's the definition. She left alone at midnight and as she descended the steps outside the ballroom, she tripped and stubbed her little toe, the one on her left foot. A boy stepped out of the darkness and caught her and held her steady. He wasn't a prince, but he had been waiting at the foot of the steps for her, for, he said, though he wasn't fit to kiss her slipper, he hoped she may look past his station and take his hand. His station did not concern her, but his melancholy did. Still, out of kindness, she took his offered orchid and she sniffed it. And in an instant, she was under his spell. The sad-eyed boy followed his princess home that night and moved quickly into her castle. He filled it with the orchids imbued with his scent and from the moment the princess woke to the second she fell asleep, he was all she breathed in. He cursed every mirror on every wall, so when the princess gazed into them, they showed only her faults. They showed them and they magnified them until the princess could see nothing else even when she closed her eyes. She closed her eyes often, and when she did, the sad-eyed boy would find her and take her hand and whisper that, though the mirrors told the truth, he loved her anyway. Every day, he drew closed another curtain on another of the castle's windows, and gradually, her vibrant rooms felt perpetual dusk. One afternoon at 3pm, after many months inside the grey castle walls, a knock came at the door. The princess stirred, but the sad-eyed boy shook his head and rose instead. The princess listened as he opened the door, and she recognised the voice of the visitor. It was the kindly prince who had always asked her to dance first at the balls. The light from the open door snaked into the room in which she was seated and touched her little toe, the one on her left foot. It felt warm and strange, and she strained to hear the words being exchanged at the door. She heard the kindly prince say, Princess! And then a slam. The light scampered away from her toe and hid before the sad-eyed boy could catch it. But it wasn't gone. It was simply waiting for her, just outside the door. Every day at 3pm, the kindly prince would knock on the princess's door. The sad-eyed boy didn't answer it and he forbade the princess from doing so with a silent look, but she began to wait every day for those knocks. Her little toe, the one on her left foot, would tingle, remembering its good fortune as the only part of her to be touched by light in many months. And her hands would sweat, as they did on so many hot, gloved nights, when the kindly prince would choose her first to dance. Every day at 3pm, a knock at the door. Every day the princess told herself she would answer, but then she would breathe in, and the scent of the sad-eyed boy would make her lungs feel heavy. She would look in the mirror and see her grotesqueness through the castle's dusk. So she did not answer, and the sad-eyed boy would find her and take her hand and tell her that he loved her. 
Uh, until one day the princess did answer the door and the kindly prince was there. So they like rode off on his horse to his way bigger, way better castle where they got married and had loads of kids. And she got to sleep with everyone on her celebrity safe list, including early years Marlon Brando and that guy from Art Attack. And they lived happily ever after the end. Yeah. Okay, that's not totally true. Um, it's actually Lady Years Marlon Brando, but people find that weird for some reason. Okay, none of that's true. The prince knocked every day for weeks and then months and then years. And then one day, the prince stopped. 3pm came and went and there was no knock at the door. The princess was distraught and the sad-eyed boy was happy, or as happy as someone with those eyes can be. I mean, nominative determinism's a bitch. (laughs) The princess waited for the knock to come back, but every day the castle became more silent. Then one day, the princess slipped on a curtain as she wandered the castle. It fell from the rings and the room, her bedroom, was filled with light. It hit first her little toe, the one on her left foot, and then it raced up her whole body. It bounced off the walls and hit the orchids, killing them instantly. It cracked every mirror in the house and it knocked the sad-eyed boy flat on his back. The princess watched her prison shatter and she knew what she had to do. She raced down the stairs, threw open the door and ran as fast as she could to the castle of her kindly prince. She skidded through his gate, stormed up his path and she saw... She saw him leaving the castle, holding the hand of another princess. This princess was also beautiful. Maybe not Middleton beautiful, but she did okay. And this princess carried lilies and a mirror that said nothing at all. And they lived happily ever after the end. Thank you so much. Bridie Lee Kennedy, everybody. So that's the end of our first act of tragedy. Uh, now's a good time to get some drinks and stuff like that. Think about the themes that could be uh, applied to the act. Uh, also, have, check out the live scribings of the live scriber. Uh, and uh, check out like, the goodies that we've got that you can get if you give us some money later. Because uh, I didn't even mention all of them. There's even more. And also check out, some, we've got some merch. At least one of our acts has got some merch on the bar to have a look and see what you can, you can purchase from her. Uh, and yeah, uh, I guess we'll start back up again in kind of ten minutes because we're already running uh, long. Brilliant. All right, see you in a bit. Now remember, you can follow the tragedy at Stand Up For Tragedy on Twitter. You can make friends with the tragedy or like the tragedy on Facebook. We're Stand Up Tragedy over there. You can read the blog posts that we send out, of tr- which, which including tragic fiction and tragic non-fiction. And keep up to date with all things tragedy-related over at www.standuptragedy.co.uk. And if you want to support the tragedy financially, you can do that over there by donating to the tragic cause. Don't forget to come to the live show Tragic Horror at the Hackney Attic on the 25th of October. 
The tickets are already available, so check out the Hackney Picture House, get some tickets. They're £5 in advance, £7 on the door, so it pays to get your tragedy early. And next week, we'll have another instalment of Tragic Friends for your listening pleasure. But for now, the tragedy is over. It's time to go. This podcast was put together by me with sound recording by Stephen Harvey and music from Sam Wilkinson and George Bruffman.